0: Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. The Front Porch Republic Conference began with an exercise in imagination. Eric Miller and Jason Peters explored whether there could be anything real without it. FPR website associate editor, Matt Stewart, introduce the speakers. So official welcome on behalf of Front Porch Republic. My name is Matt Stewart. I'm uh, one of the associate editors for the website. We're delighted to host you all for this conference and we hope you'll find it uh, valuable and enjoyable and that you'll have a good time with us. I'm very curious to know if any of you in the audience remember a very short-lived web journal called The New Pantagruel. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, Eric Miller introduced it to me back in 2004. Uh, we enjoyed it together before it closed up shop in 2006. Um, if you wanna bounce around on some clunky Waypack pages, you can still find it online and marvel at the comments, uh, pre-Twitter internet talk. The reason I bring it up is that it, it's, uh, its demise in 2006 led me eventually to Front Porch Republic when it launched in 2009, and I've been a reader ever since. The early days of Front Porch Republic were a heady time. There were dense comment threads, again pre-Twitter. Another of our panelists, Jason Peters, received 123 comments for his 2010 essay, The Bar Jester's Writing Seminar, or How to Write Like the Average Undergraduate Male. So one of the uh, aforesaid comments was, uh, described it as a little piece of misanthropic gold. (laughs) But um, Jason, that little nugget was not a compliment, actually, if if you wanna take it in one. The commenter told Professor Peters to be funnier, smarter, and more in tune with your country's social and cultural manifestations before calling him BORING in all caps. So our our comments sections rarely break the teens now, but the fact that we still have intelligent and worthwhile comments and actual conversation on the website is one reason I'm I'm very happy to see it thriving and healthy and to have been a part of it. And uh, I'm very happy to also be able to say thank you to the writers and editors of Front Porch for keeping it going. It's been a delight to see on to our speakers today's panel. I've known Eric Miller since 2001 when I was a freshman at Geneva College in Western Pennsylvania. My first class with Eric was a medieval history class and he assigned as our textbook a very dense on school monograph from Jacques LaGoffe. I was coming from a public school where I thought a lot more about football than books and um, was completely lost spent a lot of time in his office. Uh, having him help me navigate the class. Um, One of the measures of his mercy was that I think he I think it took until about November for him to to say that you know there's this thing called office hours and and you might want to take advantage of those times sometimes. (laughs) He is a professor of history at Geneva College, uh, the architect of a revised humanities curriculum that is a real gift to the students there and the author of a poignant and powerful biography of the great historian Christopher Lash, among several other books that he has written and edited. He's currently at work on a book about Wendell Berry and the rise of new localism that we're all looking forward to at Front Porch, and the editor of Current, which is an online publication, kind of like a a fraternal publication for Front Porch. Our other speaker is uh, Jason Peters, My personal contact with Jason Peters started with an email I wrote to thank him for a minor role that he played and helped me woo my wife, incidentally enough, about a decade ago. I'm not generally a connoisseur of food writing because it uh, mostly just makes me hungry and includes breathless adjectives too often. But Jason's food writing was so funny and insightful that I became a regular reader of his weekly FBR essays on food. One essay inspired me to buy some basil at a northern Virginia farmer's market and make myself a caprese salad. <laughs> While I've always enjoyed food, I've not always been very knowledgeable about the ingredients that make it so delightful. But this new awareness of basil came in handy when early conversation with my future wife that year, I thanked her for including basil in the sandwich she had made for a, for a picnic lunch that we had had. And she later said that the fact that I knew what basil was and enjoyed it was one of the early signs that I might be okay. So. so, so as you can see, I owe Jason a great deal for that article. You can go out and buy Jason's book, *The Culinary Plagiarist, on our FBR book table, and there's lots of other great books there as well. If you check down, Jeff Pollett's right there, or Jeff Bilbro, or one of the other FBR editors, you can. Um, purchase a book there. Jason also teaches English at Hillsdale College, is the editor of Local Culture at FPR, and the derailleur of every email chain that includes his email address. (laughs) So first, let's welcome Eric Miller.
1: Matt, that was not a monograph, Matt. That was a survey text. (laughs) It really was. Wow. I know nothing about medieval history, eh? uh, Incredible, I taught that class. Well, sort of, I'm sure. Uh, and I think you owe this panel. One of us got you through college, and the other one got you your wife. I mean, this is... Being uh, the warm up act, to Jason Peters is a career high. I, I may just like stop right now after I'm done. And, but the panel is on imagination and My paper is called, The Instructed Imagination. It is hard to live in Port William and yet have in mind the blasted and burnt, bloodied and muddy and stinking battlegrounds of Okinawa. Hard to live in one place and imagine another. So declares Hannah Coulter, one of Wendell Berry's fictional creations, as she reflects on her late husband's experience in in World War II many decades before. Then she adds emphatically, but imagination is what is needed. One of imagination makes things unreal enough to be destroyed. By imagination, I mean knowledge and love. I mean compassion. People of power kill children, The old send young to die because they have no imagination. They have power. Can you have power and imagination at the same time? Can you kill people you don't know and have compassion for them at the same time? It's hard to imagine timelier words or questions. And like anyone I suspect who has spent any time in Port William I'm happy to give Hannah Coulter the last word on most anything, including the meaning and priority of imagination. I'm certainly far from sure I can improve upon her understanding of it. But hers is, alas, not the only conception of imagination around, and I, also perhaps alas, have to occupy you for another 15 minutes before Jason shows up. So let me start by adding some other voices to Hannah's on the question of the imagination and its place in our world today. The theologian Catherine Tanner in her 2019 book, Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism says this of our lives, quote, at the same time as there is nothing but the present, there's nothing to the present. Nothing to form the basis for decision making with any any temporal horizon. Tanner believes we are suffering in so many ways because among other reasons, quote, no future can be imagined that would be radically different from the present. The result is a kind of totalization of capitalism itself. No future exists outside present capitalist arrangements. No future can be imagined. It's a description of life in hell. But here redounds a paradox. Are we not also living at a time in which the means and will to unleash the power of imagination have never been greater? Sci fi and fantasy dominate our viewing and reading horizons, and their forms and outlets multiply beyond anyone's ability to keep track. Are these attempts to break out of hell? Are they expressions of it? The songwriter Mark Heard in We Have Let Freedom Ring classifies us in our liberated state as just another wild beast wrapped up in the role of predator. Untamed, unchained, unchained, unashamed, unaware of danger. Can such a creature be trusted with sci-fi and fantasy, let alone digital technology? Throughout the song, Heard adds the phrase and imagination to any number of perverse acts that we, the free, have the capacity to commit. You can hang anyone you wanna hang as long as, you, as, long as you've got rope and imagination. Note that Heard's notion of imagination seems nearly the opposite of Hannah Coulter's knowledge, love, and compassion. But Hurd isn't alone in his intuition or in his fear. Roger Lundine, in his 2009 book, Believing Again, Doubt and Faith in a Secular Age, opens with a powerful chapter in which he, with what I take to be knowledge, love, and compassion, develops a historical and theological critique of the romantic turn towards sacramentality and imagination, judging it to be part of a grand attempt Quote, to sustain a Christian view of culture without the nourishment of explicit liturgical practices or confessional beliefs. The heart of Lundin's concern comes through plainly enough. The Coleridgean theory of imagination, he writes, fueled the expansion of an imperial aesthetic order in which the imagination often seemed to rival God rather than to serve him. Indeed, many of Coleridge's heirs have learned to train their sight so intently on the inner domain, Lundeen says, that they blind themselves to the glories beyond the mind. In fact, the species of blindness exists in plain sight. The imperial aesthetic order finds itself nested in no greater order. And so imagination becomes not a sanctified place, but a sacred place the sacred place, Plato's forms resident only in our minds, our own expressions of which are but the shadows. Given this sacrilege, Lundin urges us to understand ourselves not as creators, but as witnesses, those who testify to what we see out there, not within. And this it turns, (laughs) winds up nearly exactly with Hannah Coulter's understanding of imagination and behind her Wendell Berry's. In a 1992 essay Berry slices it this way, in sexes and other things we have liberated fantasy but killed imagination. So we've sealed ourselves in selfishness and loneliness. Fantasy is of the solitary self and it cannot lead us away from ourselves. It is by imagination that we cross over the differences between ourselves and others and other beings, and thus learn compassion, forbearance, mercy, forgiveness, sympathy, and love, the virtues without which neither we nor the world can live. By imagination, Barry contends, we apprehend and embrace the life sustaining virtues. Imagination is the teacher of a people that, let there be no doubt, requires instruction. Now all of this, the virtues, the need to learn them, brings to mind another voice. That of one of my graduate school teachers, Donald H. Meyer, who in 1972 published The Instructed Conscience, The Shaping of the American National Ethic. Its focus, as it happens, is the very era in which the romantics were spinning out their hope of cultural salvation through sacrament and imagination the 19th century. But those Meyer studied, America's college presidents as they were constructing capstone courses in moral philosophy, were not centering their hopes on the imagination as the linchpin Americans would need to keep freedom free. They were concerned rather with conscience, which they conceived as a faculty that offers human beings as the the possibility of moral alignment with, in Meyers' words, objective reality. If the Republic were to be safeguarded, the conscience would need to be properly instructed in this reality. That imagination freely flows in our discourse today while conscience suffers all the ignominy of Victorian fashion is an interesting, if familiar story. But I'm struck by the possibility of a relation between the two. As these moral philosophers conceived of conscience as a faculty, so do we conceive of imagination. Curiously though, both terms also connote a state. Think of the notion of good conscience. It's a state at which one arrives. Or turning from conscience back to imagination, hear Van Morrison in a Blakean moment professing that There is a dream where the contents are visible, where the poetic champions compose. The Faculty of Imagination takes us into that dream, the dream in which the muse whispers and our words flow. But some describe this elevated experience itself as imagination, imagination as a state. Wendell Berry's friend and teacher, the poet Kathleen Raine, who always capitalized imagination, saw it this way as a state. She referred to imagination as a sanctuary. Berry writes that for Raine, the power of imagination is to see things in their eternal aspect, to know the timeless as it moves through time, the eternal presence that is both in and outside time and that comprehends the things we know and remember. Well, there must be a rule somewhere among Christians of a certain type, at least, that all roads eventually lead back to Augustine. In this case, Augustine gets us closer to the platonic fount of all this ruminating about truth and eternity, knowledge and memory, virtue and morality, and he tilts us toward his Christological promise. In Book 11 of The City of God, Augustine contends that, quote, we men have another and far far higher perception which is interior, and by which we distinguish what is from what, uh, distinguish what is just from what is unjust. Augustine believes uh, that the function of this sense is not aided by a keen eye, nor by ear, nose, or palate, nor by any bodily touch. By it I am certain of my existence and of the knowledge of my existence. Moreover, I love those two, these two, and in like manner am certain that I love them. He adds that there is a great difference between knowing something in the very idea according to which it was made and knowing it as it is in itself. Note that Augustine writes of a higher perception that is interior, yet helps me to know something in the very idea according to which it was made." For Augustine, crucially, this interior zone exists not so that I might isolate and deify myself, but rather that I might know myself as part of something greater. What he earlier refers to in a phrase worth guarding as the common wheel of cosmic beauty. Common wheel of cosmic beauty. Oh, to see this common wheel. Oh, to sense it, to enter that dream where the contents are visible, so that we may bear witness to the beauty of which we are a part, this beauty that enriches us together, that only enriches us as we know ourselves in a glorious state of oneness with it. Isn't this common wheel of cosmic beauty exactly what Barry's poems and stories and essays and books over these many years have so remarkably and unfailingly helped us to see and even achieve, but our 19th century forebears, those cagey college presidents, were surely onto something. They knew that if we possess a faculty, (laughs) we also possess not simply the possibility, but the certainty of misusing it. They were Augustinian enough, even in the century of progress, to know that our faculties require instruction, what we today call formation. Our tendencies are to take any good gift and turn it into a weapon against goodness itself. The desperately wicked heart of the King James Version or the desperately sick heart of the English Standard Version, is one of the most haunting renderings of our condition. It's a phrase that can do a lot of necessary work if we have the imagination to allow it to do so. Let's give that a shot. I suggest that in our primal state, Our imaginations easily seek inspiration from two primordial poles, the creation and the fall. Flannery O'Connor frames her story, good country people with two characters whose archetypal names catechize us in the directions from which our imaginations tend to flow. Mrs. Freeman, the narrator says, quote, had a special fondness for the details of secret infections, hidden Deformities, assaults upon children, (laughs) and then my favorite, of diseases, she preferred the lingering or the incurable. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Hopewell, on the other hand, smatters her conversation with the most unbearable banalities. A smile never hurt anyone. Nothing's perfect. Other people have their opinions, too. So far as imaginations go, we have here the ordinary poles of perennial, all too familiar human dimness, optimism, and pessimism. As only O'Connor can do, she shows us just how unimpressive these instincts are. But to these perennial instincts, she adds a disturbing recently emergent instinct that has overtaken and deformed the story's two main characters, the self-naming Holga and Manly. Their imaginations exist not in tension with the creation and fall, but rather in denial of both. And so they float somewhere above these poles or perhaps below them. Their imaginations are oriented toward neither primeval glory nor ancient ruin, but rather toward precisely nothing. Holga and Manly are nihilists. Holga by virtue of her reading, she's a philosopher, and Manly by virtue, apparently, of simply breathing modern air. At the story's climax, Manly shouts to Holga, you ain't so smart. I've been believing in nothing ever since I was born. (laughs) As we get to know them, we see that Holga lives alone within the grand sardonic joke she is self-consciously fashioning of her life. Though, as the narrator says, her constant outrage had obliterated every expression from her face. For his part, Manley is revealed as, a, as perfectly, inhumanly modern, when in a head-jolting twist, we witness his fetish for the mechanical, his primal preferences for the machine, not the body, and he ruthlessly uses the latter to gain possession of the former. If our post-lapsarian challenge has always been to school the imagination toward redemption of the good without succumbing to either the denial or the triumph of evil, O'Connor shows us how much harder this task has become in an age that imagines itself to be floating in a cosmic void free of an orienting archetypal past. So how must we imaginatively proceed? I suggest that we go to school with writers who set their faces like Flint in the necessary direction, not not turned sentimentally or bitterly toward a primordial past, but rather toward a future hope, the hope of glory, the hope of redemption from our otherwise hopeless fate. More, I suggest we discover writers who seem to know from the inside the demonic tendencies of not just optimism and pessimism, but also nihilism, and who work to subvert them in the name of redemption. Gratefully, there are many possibilities, as I hope all these voices reveal, but to close this out, I'll pair Walker Percy with Wendell Berry, writers I've fruitfully read in tandem. And Barry, we have a writer anchored in a profoundly pervading doctrine of creation. And it's this that sparks his vision of redemption. Barry writes, what are we but hosts of times of all the Sabbath morning shows, the light that finds it good. The light of the first Sabbath morning yet shines even in our darkness, Barry sees. He is resolute in his desire not to enter into the error of which St. Paul warns in Romans chapter 1, to fail to live and act with gratitude toward the creator whose bountiful goodness surrounds us. Yet reading Barry, we also sense that for him, achieving this affirmation was a hard-fought struggle. As his early writing reveals, it swings less compellingly between optimism and pessimism. But by the 1970s, the quote, melancholic and rebellious boy he describes in The Long-Legged House had found a stout center of resistance, and it's no accident that his most beloved poem articulates his breakthrough with such imaginative, redemptive potency. Practice resurrection, he urges at the end of his Mad Farmer manifesto. For his part, no one ever took Walker Percy for a Pelagian laugh if you know Percy. Given the history of suicide in his family, both his father and grandfather and perhaps his mother took their own lives. Percy had plenty to absorb and overcome regarding the fall before he could achieve a point of resistance. But his literary and scholarly repository is rich with his history of not just resistance, but hope. An MD with a knack for pathology, Percy would not let us drift from facing up to the to the peculiar pervading perversity of human corruption. Indeed, he saw it in highly imaginative ways to help us to sense it, as when, for instance, he describes people like Holga and Manly as ghostly, lost in the cosmos. Or when, with antic wit, he has the brilliant, all but lost Dr. Tom Moore in his 1971 novel, Love in the Ruins, seek not only to gauge but cure our waywardness with high-tech virtuosity. Dr. Moore invents the qualitative, quantitative, ontological lapsometer, an invention a Holger and Manley might even love. But if Percy the pathologist lacked Barry's architectonic sense of how we might build a social order, He joined with Barry in insisting, finally, that redemption is a reality. In fact, both Barry and Percy point with brilliance toward what John Milbank offers as hope in the midst of a civilization he sees as in a state of dissolution. With the the incarnation of Christ, says Milbank, the human person was thrust eternally into the center of history, reconstituting the way we imagine power and its purposes. Both Percy and Barry bear witness to the beauty and significance and neediness and hope of the human person. Our hope today is to follow voices like theirs in striving to sense the worth that is always directly before us, dissolution solution or no. And then to transform our hearts and minds, our neighborhoods and communities, according to the liberating dictates of knowledge, love and compassion. Thank you
2: well it's fun to be up here with matt and eric matt got me at a good time my matchmaking fees were pretty low back then <laughs> but they've gone up with inflation last year at uh, fpr <clears throat> i spoke on ian forrester's story uh, the machine stops and i think maybe i had my timing a little bit off I should have just recycled that talk from last year, I got to come clean on the title of this one i've stolen part of it I plagiarized part of it from Ralph wacko Emerson, he said that the he said that perception is not whimsical but fatal. And i've I think improved upon that a little bit by saying imagination is not whimsical but fatal. But then Emerson, I'm not an Emersonian. I mean, he was a, he was a Unitarian. And you cross him with Jehovah's Witness, and then you got somebody who knocks on your front door for no apparent reason. <laughs> I didn't say that to clear the Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses out of the room. I just thought it was funny, so I thought I'd say it. I was going to begin with a line Uh, A teenage son like the sexual revolution is a gift that keeps on taking (laughs) and just see if uh, that joke would work in Madison. (laughs) Instead I want to say that um, these, these meetings of FPR, they usually operate at a pretty high level. They're never very nerdy or academic and that's what makes them fun and I'm about to ruin this one on all three accounts. I ask you to keep in mind, if you can, four propositions. One, that the imagination is a fundamental property of mind. Two, that we all therefore have imagination. Three, that the imagination functions in two ways. And four, that the imagination is never not working. At the unconscious level, everyone's imagination is always at work. And now I risk asking one more thing of you uh, that you keep in mind. This sentence from Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason. It is short and memorable because it's very stupid. Whether we sleep or wake, the vast machinery of the universe still goes on. Four propositions and one sentence, each on a different mental back burner. Good luck. And here's a sixth. That guru on imagination in the English-speaking world was Samuel Taylor Coleridge, poet, philosopher, opium addict and author of The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, *Kubla Khan and other works that indicate heavy opium use. <laughs> Coleridge considered the imagination as either primary or secondary. That's the third of my propositions. It works in two ways. The primary imagination is the living power and prime agent of all human perception. It is also, brace yourself, a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. And that's just the primary. The secondary imagination is an echo of the primary, coexisting with the conscious will, yet still as identical with the primary in the kind of its agency. It dissolves, diffuses, dissipates in order to recreate. It struggles to idealize and to unify. And for your sake, I cut a bunch of that out. You got that? That mouthful will take up the remaining seven elements on your industrial-sized 12-burner mental stove. Uh, Byron said of Coleridge, I wish he would explain his explanation. (laughs) I'll try to do what Byron asked for. The fundamental difference between the primary and secondary imaginations is that whereas the primary imagination makes the world, more on that in a moment, the secondary imagination makes poetry. Or rather, the secondary imagination makes art, By taking a selection of things, assembling and arranging them, and in doing so, creating a unity out of them. As Coleridge said, imagination struggles to idealize and to unify. So each part of a poem or novel or painting or symphony must conspire with all the other parts to form a unified whole. Take, for example, Shakespeare's 73rd sonnet, the one that begins that time of year, Thou mayest in me behold. In it, Shakespeare says to his young friend, I'm getting older now, so when you look at me, you might see autumn, that's the first four lines, or you might see a sunset, that's the second four lines, or you might see a dying fire, third four lines. I've just uh, paraphrased the irreducible, right? but that's the basic structure of that sonnet. So you've got autumn, uh, you've got sunset, you've got fire. There's a clear unity here. Autumn, sunset, and fire are united by, among other things, color, by their suggestion of the end of something, by cooling, and by a movement from large to small. A season lasts longer than a day, a day lasts longer than a fire. Fire is the shortest measurement of time, And it is fitting that the movement in the poem about death should dwindle in this manner. The secondary, or if you prefer the artistic imagination has assembled a few constituent parts, created a unity that we call a good sonnet. It is fitting that there is nothing in the poem suggesting that the speaker resembles a doorknob, a hydraulic hose, or a pork chop. Any one of those would destroy the poem's unity. And what the imagination insists on is unity. Or take metaphor. This too is created by the secondary imagination. The unity it produces manifests in the similarity that it finds in difference. It says that death, which is not a thief, is a thief. That love, which is not a rose, is a rose. Sleep is the balm of hurt minds says Macbeth, and he should know. Old age is autumn, sunset, and dying embers. Different things are unlike simply because they are different things. But imagination sees a similarity, brings them together, and new meaning enters the cosmos. Some metaphors seem more apt than others. Those I just mentioned are, are more apt than saying that the mind is an industrial 12 burner stove. They are more apt than saying that marriage is a long, tedious seven course meal with a dessert first. <laughs> However, illuminating that metaphor may be. So much for the secondary imagination and one man's chances. The primary imagination being an agent of perception creates not poems but things in fact it creates the world hear me out it takes what the mind receives from the senses and assembles them into the familiar face of nature or the everyday world we deal with take the old question about a tree falling in the forest I forbear using the Jack Handy version of the question If a tree falls in the forest and lands on an old man walking with a cane, is it still funny? (laughs) Or the domestic bliss version. If a man says something and a woman isn't there to hear him, is he still wrong? (laughs) I'm going to pay for that one, too. (laughs) The original question is, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it still make a sound? And the answer, if Coleridge is right, about imagination is no. The word for what the falling tree makes is not sound, but noise. For noise denotes the bare percept, the thing, whatever it is, that hits your ear. That thing, a wave, I guess, is simply a sense impression that the imagination, as an agent of perception, hasn't gone to work on yet. But then the imagination does go to work on it to convert it from noise into sound. Tree falls. I take in the sense impression. Imagination assembles it and whatever else and presents that impression to me. And then I am able to say, that is a tree falling, not a politician lying out his ass. <laughs> but without my being there in the forest, there is nothing there to make, to make that distinction. There is then nothing but noise. Sound is what the imagination makes of noise when sense hands the bare percept over to it. Think of it this way, and I think this is a good analogy for both primary and imaginary uh, uh, imagination. The senses perform an important function, but they merely deliver building materials to the job site. The imagination builds the house. Here's another illustration. Sunlight shines through droplets of water and I behold a rainbow. I know that at the end of the rainbow, there's a liquor store. I see where the rainbow touches down. I'm thirsty, so I walk there, but when I arrive, I see that it now touches down somewhere else. Chase it how I will, I will never arrive at the pot of gold. And what I learned from this is that the rainbow is there not because of sunlight and water only, but because of sunlight, water, and me, the perceiver equipped with the primary imagination. The rainbow moves when I move. I am therefore implicated in its existence. The rainbow moves when I move. I am therefore implicated in its existence, every bit as much as water and sunlight are. If I were not implicated in its existence, it would not move when I move. I believe a physicist in search of an electron would say the same thing. In calling the primary imagination the prime agent of human perception, Coleridge was reacting against John Locke's theory of mind, the passive receiver, the blank slate, which was also Thomas Paine's view of mind. Whether we sleep awake, the vast machinery of the universe goes on. It is a view that follows logically, if not perforce, from the Cartesian divide between mind and matter. But after the senses have done their job, the blank slate, because it is merely passive, has nothing on it except black dots, as it were. That is, unorganized sense impressions. And unorganized sense impressions are not a unity, whereas nature is. The everyday world with which we deal is. The black dots add up only to chaos, like 12 tone music or the vice president's sentences. The active mind, by contrast, The primary imagination assembles those impressions into a unity, just as the secondary imagination assembles things into that unity we call a good poem, or a well-arranged sitting parlor, or a well-designed city. You're out of burners on your stove, so put these statements in the oven of your mind. One, acts of the imagination, acts of the secondary imagination, acts of making occur on the conscious level and remind us that the primary imagination is at work on the unconscious level. The secondary can tutor us in the primary. And two, there is always this repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. That, I think, is the hardest thing to make sense of in Coleridge's definition of the imagination. But think of it this way. Creation is an eternal act, not something that ended at Miller time on Friday. And it is our supreme dignity as persons to participate eternally in it. And so you might say that imagination itself is part of what we mean when we speak of the imago dei, the image of God. Unless of course you think other people are vectors of disease. But that's the anthropology of the deep state, or what I like to call the branch COVIDian. (laughs) Thank you, that was funny. Even if you disagree with me, you gotta admit it was funny. I must now add a fifth (laughs) proposition. that if the foregoing is true, the world outside me does not enjoy an existence independent of perception. Certainly something is there, the bare percept, the wave, the noise created by the falling tree. It would be an offense against both reason and logic to say otherwise. An inscrutable German philosopher from Königsberg might call that that, that bare percept the thing in itself, das Ding an sich, and that's uh, all well and good, I suppose, if you speak the language that gave us the word Vergangenheitsbewältigung. one word, in English that's a whole paragraph. If you're a University of Wisconsin-Madison frat boy, it's a whole research paper. But what we deal with at the level of everyday experience is what the imagination does with the things in themselves. And what it does is convert them into appearances or the phenomena that we have ordinary commerce with. This white pine that we all agree on. That star that we all can see. That unified assemblage of limb and tissue and skin and mouth and nose and eyes, and especially forehead that goes by the name Bill Kaufman, who is himself, notwithstanding his attire, a unity, <laughs> a person. But then again, imagination itself is a unity, and it can even turn all that into a unity. When I was born, Very few people, if any, could have supposed that something called the computer would come along and colonize our thinking about the brain, how it works and what it is. And none, I dare say, could have anticipated that E.O. Wilson, expert on ants and therefore on human nature, would say that the body is a complex machine, the brain a complex computer, and the best way to fix the ills of these two machines is to think of them as engineering problems. During the course of my lifetime, we surrendered our thinking about an old thing we didn't make to the heuristic power of a new thing we did make. And this is only one of the many absurdities that we have reconciled ourselves to. Forgive me if I insist that we must think this thing through carefully. First matter of business is what I've been at pains to articulate. Either we're going to have Locke's passive blank slate or Coleridge's active imagination. The end game of the blank slate is mere cunning, though we lie to ourselves and call it knowledge. The end game of imagination is unity, though we apparently prefer chaos. We prefer noise to sound. The second matter of business is to get our minds around the contingency of this cunning. The brain can't be a computer if there is no computer just as there can be no good shepherd without a shepherd. And obviously, the brain can become something else once that something else gets invented. Whereupon, what once was truth, now becomes error. And then it's crickets from the New York Times. But whatever the brain is or will be is due not to itself, but to the imagination, by which by perceiving and by the fundamental act of comparison, makes it. Only by imagination can the world be known. And so a third matter of business is is to disabuse ourselves of another mistake Thomas, uh, sorry, to to disabuse ourselves of another mistake Thomas Paine made. Paine is a good whipping boy uh, because he stated his errors in a conveniently plain manner. He said that we do not make principles, we discover them. In other words, he fools himself into believing that knowledge rises from the object instead of from the subject, from things instead of from the person looking at them. This, again, should remind us to prefer the active imagination to the, bla- to the passive blank slate. If all this be so, and I think it is, then we might reasonably ask what follows from widespread habituation to the Thomas Paine doctrine and what kind of trouble we're in for because of it. The only reason I ask is that that habituation is precisely what has happened. I can think of a few things that follow, which I will mention only in passing. The complete disenchantment of nature, total alienation from it and from others and from oneself, the transformation of religion into therapy, the application of the epithet smart to things that are manifestly dumb and that make us dumber and that further alienate us from the world and from one another and from ourselves. I'll grant that the Baconian dream of controlling nature in order to ease man's estate has been remarkably successful. But it takes no metaphysician to notice that controlling a thing is a lot easier when you are wholly separated from it just as it's easier to perform a heart transplant on someone other than yourself. Total control, and all it cost us was total alienation, isolation, loneliness, misery, pervasive sense of meaninglessness, and a trashed planet. Bargain at any price. And let us not forget what our friend Wendell Berry said way back in 1977. An attempt at total control is an invitation to disorder. If you doubt that, look at the kid whose parent is a control freak. When we call the universe a machine, it goes on whether we sleep or wake. We saw off the limb we are sitting on. We are pulling the old Cartesian move. We are saying that the universe doesn't give a damn about mind while using mind To call that very universe into being. So let us be clear about Thomas Paine's error. One he called the universe a machine, that is he called something that is not a human artifact a human artifact. Or as I put it earlier, he surrendered his thinking about an old thing we didn't make to the heuristic power of a new thing we did make. Two, he supposed that the universe enjoys an existence independent of human perception. Three, Which is proof of two by means of the imagination he made the metaphor and converted the universe from whatever it is into a machine notwithstanding the fact that machines weren't around when the universe came into existence any more than the pump was around when the heart came into existence which is to say that by means of the imagination which he said has nothing to do with the machine of the universe he conjured the mechanical universe. It exists as a machine because of his imagination, and this cannot but mean that the universe manifestly does not go on whether he sleeps or wakes. Off goes the limb, down goes Thomas Paine. It would be far more accurate to say that the universe goes on as a machine because he sleeps, for he is not paying attention to how his own mind works, and he doesn't know what his imagination is doing. The fatality of imagination, as opposed to its whimsicality, has assured us of this. If you call the universe or the body or the brain a machine, then a machine it will be. If you call nature a commodity, a commodity it will be. And if the habit of mind of a whole people treats nature as commodity, Well, the evidence is all around us of what happens to nature when it has been commodified. What we think, what we imagine, is not whimsical. It is fatal. That is, it isn't arbitrary, but decisive. The world we deal with is the product of our thinking. If you are unable to agree with this, and I expect many of you are, you might at least be able to agree that for all practical purposes it is the product of our own thinking. And Now I must gesture towards something that you probably with good reason are wondering about, though there is no time to develop it, and that is whether on this view of imagination everything is up for grabs. I will venture an explanation in miniature of why it is not up for grabs. Percy Shelley famously said in his defense of poetry, that the language of poets is vitally metaphorical, that is, it marks the before unapprehended relations of things. It takes things that aren't alike and it brings them together. It marks the before unapprehended relation of things. This is true enough of any new metaphor, such as the one expressed by Sir John Suckling in his poem, Love's Offense. Love is the fart of every heart. It pains a man when tis kept close, and others doth offend when tis let loose. (laughs) That's true enough. Sometimes love is a damned if you do, damned if you don't proposition. But compare Suckling's metaphor, love is a pocket of abdominal gas, to Shakespeare's 73rd sonnet, which I mentioned earlier. And you get the impression that Shakespeare is not seizing upon relations that haven't been apprehended yet, but rather he is restoring lost relations. In fact, it is probably more proper to say that in Shakespeare's sonnet we are dealing not so much with metaphor as with symbol. A metaphor is always a linguistic event. A symbol is not. And if symbol descends to us from our immense mythic endowment, and if our mythic endowment suggests to you, as it does to me, a primal unity that has suffered its own Tower of Babel or Humpty Dumpty episode, then the imagination, while it may sometimes be seizing upon Shelley's relations not yet noticed, is also in search of relations that we have lost. Do we not feel a sense of apt relations in Shakespeare's sonnet, and what is more, an intimation of the fullness of man, not as alien, but as microcosm? Maybe this gives meaning to Coleridge's remark about the repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. At any rate, calling the universe a machine or the brain a computer is a diminishment of this refulgence of the microcosm. And if believed, it is a kind of blasphemy. What I'm suggesting is that the imagination so lost to us is lost to us because we left it and then came back looking for it and found it in the temple about his father's business, requiring that something that was damaged in some kind of fall, a fall that, in my view, hit the ground for good about the time of Descartes, who, in separating mind from matter, gave Thomas Paine permission to make that stupid remark. At any rate, on this view, acts of imagination are never whimsical, they are fatal, decisive and it matters desperately what we think. And perhaps we should see to it that there be better training in imagination and in the disciplines that treat of it. I don't think the instrumental disciplines, the sciences and the applied sciences are going to be of much help here, but they certainly could be. If even as they rightly busy themselves with creating larger and larger telescopes and more and more sensitive calipers, They begin to take an interest in the mind's own creative activity and what that means for their work. They might even find out that only by imagination can the world be known. I would like to end with a quotation from something that Owen Barfield wrote in 1951. The possibility of man's avoiding self-destruction depends on his realizing before it is too late that what he let loose over Hiroshima after fiddling with its exterior for three centuries like a mechanical toy was the forces of his own unconscious mind. Thank you for listening.
0: until next time whether you can imagine basil on a sandwich or not thanks for pulling up a chair
1: find your way home find your